When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm honored to be joined by Margaret Jacobs, author of After 100 Winters in Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands, published in 2021 by Princeton University Press. Dr. Jacobs is the Charles Mock Professor of History and Director of the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Margaret Jacobs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Brady. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So to start, if you could just uh, tell us a bit about yourself, your background, your scholarly background, um, and the work that you do at the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska. Well, I guess there's always a little bit of a risk in asking a historian to talk about their background because we could go, you know, I'm 58. I could go 58 years, but I won't do that. Um, But I grew up in uh, mostly in Colorado. uh, And then I've spent a lot of my adult life in California, New Mexico, and mostly here in Nebraska, where I live now. Um, I am a professor of history at the University of Nebraska. I've been here 18 years. And before that, I was at New Mexico State University. Um, I did my PhD in uh, history of the American West at UC Davis, graduating in 1996. Um, And I've ended up specializing really in uh, relationships between white women and indigenous peoples, uh, both in the United States, but also in Australia and Canada. And I also ended up focusing probably like the last almost 25 years of my career on uh, the phenomenon of indigenous child removal, both to institutions like Indian boarding schools, but also to uh, placement in non-Indian families or non-Indigenous families uh, for fostering and adoption. So uh, about a year ago, I took on a new role at my university, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and that's the director of the Center for Great Plains Studies. And this entity has been around for 45 years, and it was started by some really great, very visionary people back in the 1970s. And from its very beginnings, it's always had a really strong focus on indigenous peoples. Um, But it's a really interesting institution. It, It does scholarly things like, you know, publish journals and books, and we, we hold a lot of educational programming and we do a conference every year, but it's also really meant to be a public facing institution and promote public engagement with the work that we all do as scholars at the, at the university. And it's very interdisciplinary too. We uh, have a lot of scientists involved as well as social scientists, humanities, arts people, So for me, it's just an ideal place to work right now because so much of my scholarship, like this book, is really very public-facing right now. It's really about um, trying to translate what we do in the academy for a much wider audience. Yes, and that definitely shows in this book. 
um, and I think some of the other work of yours that we will talk about during this interview. So just, just to focus on the book for a bit. Um, so how did you become interested in this topic? And that feels a little limiting to say this topic. So I'll say uh, in these histories, because there's a lot of sort of over overlapping and sort of interlocking histories covered in this book. Yeah, so, um, you know, again, as a historian, I have to tell you a little bit more history than you might want to know. But, you know, when I was in graduate school, I, I went to graduate school because I was interested in U.S. women's history. And when I got there, I was just so fortunate to end up in a class with such an amazing scholar, Vicki Ruiz. And Vicki, my first semester, she was teaching a class on the new Western history, which of course now is not that new, but then was very new. And I just became completely enamored with that. I never thought of that as, quote, real history. I, you know, I sort of grew up in the West and it just didn't, all I'd ever learned about that history was mythology. And so I got so interested in that. And, but I still wanted to maintain that focus on women and gender. But the other thing that happened to me in graduate school that really put me on the path I'm on is that I had this incredible cohort uh, of women uh, that I became really close to. And one of them, I mean, they were all incredible, uh, but one of them was a woman named Annette Reed. And Annette's a member of the Tolawan Nation of Northern California. And, you know, my friendship with her and my uh, collegiality with her in graduate school really influenced me that I just became so interested in Native American history uh, through her. So that's the really old story. The newer story is that after working, uh, you know, for almost 25 years on trying to uncover the truth around Indigenous child removal and family separation in the U.S. and Canada and Australia, I was very um, moved by what's happening in Canada and Australia. Uh, Australia had an entire decade devoted to reconciliation uh, in the 1990s. And during that decade, they had an inquiry into what they call the stolen generations, indigenous children who were taken from their families uh, for, a, for about a century. And, um, and I happened to start my research in 1998. So I, that was my first trip to Australia as an academic. And so I just got so taken with what this nation was doing, you know, to confront this history. And of course, that's been a really problematic and imperfect and incomplete process. But it, it just struck me as, wow, this nation's really facing up to this history. And then Canada has had multiple iterations of a truth and reconciliation process. And the most uh, recent one was from about 2009 to 2015, when they ha held a formal truth and reconciliation commission around Indian residential schools. And I, by that time, was so uh, interested in these processes that I went to the final ceremonies of the Canadian Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that really moved me um, to think, well, what could I do as a scholar about not just talking about truth, um, but also moving toward reconciliation. So that put me on a very interesting path, I think, of wanting to think about how I could take the next step as a scholar. So this book is really a product of that. It's um, in terms of wanting to write about the history of truth and reconciliation in the United States and in this global context uh, when it comes to settlers and indigenous people, but also um, to kind of get involved in it myself as a scholar and think about what projects could I do that would further uh, reconciliation or decolonization or uh, truth, healing, and justice for Indigenous peoples. Yes, and I, I think um, that last answer uh, highlights that this is both, although I, maybe you would disagree, this felt like both a scholarly book and a very sort of personal book. Um, I, I think there's lots to gain as scholars, uh, as well as just human beings interested in other human beings. Um, <laughs> um, so, so before we dive in too deeply, um, I, there's, a, there's a couple of terms that I think uh, you and I probably take for granted that we should probably define. Um, so uh, focusing on the North American context, just because I think many, if not all of our listeners will probably be from that context. 
um, and it's the context I certainly know best. Um, so, so what is settler colonialism? Um, and you reference um, another term that I think is an important one. Uh, what is uh, settler revolution or the settler revolution? Um, and if you could discuss their relationships um, as, as the United States rose as a, United, as a nation state. Yeah, so the term settler colonialism is one I started, uh, I learned of way back uh, in the 1990s. And uh, when I was doing some comparative history uh, research with Canada, Australia, and the United States. And it's a term that's been used readily in Australia and Canada for a very long time, since the 1990s at least. And um, it refers to a type of colonialism in this case from British immigrants who come to uh, North America or Australia, New Zealand, uh, and they come to stay. They don't come just to extract resources or put the native population to work for them and then return with all the wealth uh, to their homes. They come to stay and they come for permanent settlement. And this type of colonialism means that they're very focused on eliminating indigenous people from the land or at least eliminating their ties to that land. So in all settler colonial nations, you see this incredible uh, transfer of land uh, in the United States. You know, about 98% of the land was transferred from native indigenous people to white, mostly white, but not all settlers. Um, and that was true in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada as well. And so part of settler colonialism is this sort of demographic, uh, incredible overwhelming of the indigenous population. And it's often involves great violence, uh, removal from lands, and then an attempt to erase native people's cultures and abilities to tell their own histories. So uh, a historian from New Zealand named James Bellich, uh, he coined the term settler revolution. And um, what that means is that, I mean, he documents that in the 18th century, there were about 1 million migrants from Britain to these settler colonial outposts. And at that time, they weren't even really settler colonial. They were just colonial outposts. But in the 19th century, there were 56 million migrants from Britain to these uh, settler colonies. And in just the space of a few generations, almost all the land in these places was transferred through violence, through the sort of treaty making in some cases, uh, at least in the case of New Zealand and North America. Uh, all this land, almost all of it was transferred from indigenous people to settlers. And that just wreaked such havoc on indigenous peoples. So that's what the settler revolution is about. And to me, this is completely tied up in the formation of the American nation, as it was with the Australian and Canadian and New Zealand nations. And settler colonialism and dispossession was really integral to the formation of the American nation. And I actually call this a founding crime, along with slavery. Um, that was at the sort of heart of forming uh, the United States. Absolutely. Um, I think for any historian who studied uh, the history of the United States, it's, it's hard to argue with that claim of the founding crime. Um, but there certainly are scholars, certainly uh, Americans and, and others uh, who dispute that claim. Um, so, so you started to hint at sort of the the trauma that is embedded in this experience, but um, obviously through land dispossession, um, the boarding schools, um, et cetera. But could you talk a bit more about how um, settler colonialism and the traumas associated with it um, are embedded, um, not just in indigenous, but also in settler communities, right? I think one of the key sort of um, evolutions to sort of this field, at least from my perspective, is that people are really starting to understand or try to understand sort of the settler experience, um, acknowledging that it is not all upside, right? Just because land dispossession happens and you accrue wealth and land, 
does not mean that that is necessarily a positive for settlers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think probably to uh, your listeners and my readers, it's pretty obvious how the trauma of land dispossession has embedded itself within Native families and communities. You know, this experience of mass violence, of genocide, um, that I document, for example, at Sand Creek uh, against the Cheyenne and Arapaho people, uh, this is, you know, it's still very present within those communities. I mean, still remember those ancestors. They still honor those ancestors. They're still very much affected by their, their living away from their homelands. Um, and there's the trauma of the Ponca people and the Pawnee people that I write about who were exiled, forcibly exiled from Nebraska. Um, and there's the trauma of the boarding schools. Uh, there's the trauma of having your graves dug up and your ancestors put in museums uh, as a spectacle. So those are, I think, you know, uh, I do write about those traumas. Um, but I think there's also, I don't know if I use the same word trauma, but I think there's also some deep histories that are embedded in the lives of settlers too. So those who perpetrated violence, like at Sand Creek, or those who stood by and watched it, those who took over the land. For example, I always think about what was it like for those new settlers, many of them immigrants from Europe, who came to Nebraska and the Ponca people were marched from their homelands in north central Nebraska to Indian territory over 600 miles. And they marched through all these communities of new white settlers. And I just wonder what was that, you know, these people had just taken over this land and many of them were sympathetic to the Poncas. So what was it like to see that and to, um, how has that embedded itself and, and come down through the generations? So I think there's a lot of legacies of shame and guilt um, in many settlers for these histories. Uh, a lot of pain, too. A lot of what we might call today PTSD, too. Um, but there's also so much denial and so much refusal to remember these histories. So in some way, this book is a call for settlers to not be afraid to remember this history, to dare to remember this history, and um, to realize that there's a power in that, and that it's not something to fear, it's something to embrace, and that it's something that can really empower settlers and lead to a much better society for everybody. Indeed. you know, I, I mentioned off air that uh, part of my family is from Nebraska. Um, you know, they were Irish immigrants um, who had been dispossessed of their land by, yes. uh, you know, the English and the crown. Um, so I, I often think about what my great grandfather thought, you know, he was coming in the late uh, 19th century. Um, so he, he fled Ireland, not because he wanted to, you know, we have letters in our sort of family records, right, that showed that he, he had little interest in leaving Ireland um, and deeply missed his, for example, mother. Um, but uh, he, he moved to this country um, and certainly didn't, I think, I don't know that he conceived of himself as a settler. I don't know that he would have um, <laughs> endorsed, uh, you know, obviously the actions of the U.S. government and some of the earlier settlers. Um, who, as you said, forcibly removed the Panka and Pani, but that, that could be wishful thinking on my part. Um, but, you know, there, there were generations of immigrants who fled the kind of persecution that they would have then saw <laughs> upon arrival yes. in, you know, in these new lands. Um, so, yeah, I, I often reflect on that. Um, so, so, yeah, just for, for what that is worth, uh, that was part of my interest, certainly in interviewing you, because this this book felt like a family history that, that I had not been presented or read before um, mm. in many ways. Um, although, to be clear, you don't mention any of my family members, but, you know, <laughs> similar stories, perhaps. Um, but so, so my next question sort of connects to this, this larger idea about sort of settler identity. Um, 
So, you know, you, you write, other scholars write about settlers, um, and I don't, you know, it's not going to surprise you that a lot of the people that you write about and their descendants do not see themselves as settlers or the descendants of settlers necessarily. Um, certainly not part of a multi-century sort of settler colonial project. Um, so is, is there a, a term that you've um, come across that sort of, I don't know, conceptualizes like this really complex identity, or is it just a question of using sort of multiple sort of words to identify the people who landed here, you know, whether they were settlers, whether they were immigrants, whether they were, you know, something else entirely. Um, it, it's, I, I think to have the conversation you want to have, right, there's this sort of a, a nuanced conversation that I often find is hard to have. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there, I, I think this is a struggle of all historians is to find uh, usable terms that are understandable. Um, um, so there's no perfect term for the in, non-Indigenous people who came to this country or their descendants or the non-Indigenous people who continue to come to this country. Um, and, you know, the term settler is, is so imperfect for a lot of reasons. One, it implies that Native people hadn't settled the country, you know, and that nothing could be further from the truth. Native people had settled here. Um, so the other thing, I think settler sounds so benign, you know, it just sounds so peaceful, right? Uh, and I, for a long time, I resisted the term settler. And for a long time, I didn't like the concept of settler colonialism because it just, it had this air of just seeming like this nonviolent process when in reality, it's such a brutal and harsh process. And I think another problem with the term is that it's kind of can be very homogenizing of so many different uh, immigrants or slaves experiences uh, as part of the sort of American historical narrative. But yet I use it because um, one, I, I think that, I think it will eventually become more common in the United States as it has done in Canada and Australia. People use it so freely in, in those places uh, with, with no hesitation at all. And I think it's useful because what it does is it foregrounds the relationship between non-Native people and Native or Indigenous people. It foregrounds the colonial roots of America's founding. And, um, but I think what's really important is always to treat it, uh, not, to, not to treat it as this homogenous thing and always to seek out the intersections of different uh, identities. For example, your Irish ancestors. I mean, that's such an important intersection that they themselves were victims of British colonialism and survivors of it as well, I would say. Um, you know, I have a former PhD student who worked on Jewish homesteaders, and that's another sort of, you know, complicated settler identity. And of course, what about African Americans who were just newly freed and took up homesteads themselves. Um, and then there's, you know, Asian immigrants and Mexican immigrants and, and all these different groups of people who suffered from all sorts of enslavement, plunder, violence, exclusion, family separation themselves and detention. So, I mean, it's not that settler identity is this monolithic identity and it kind of obscures a lot of differences. And I also think it's really, in many ways, uh, there's a close correlation between settler colonialism and white supremacy. And I very briefly talk about that in the introduction to the book, but I think it comes out throughout the book that settler colonialism really is about taking over land, colonizing, eliminating indigenous people. And then when you pair it with white supremacy, there's also this element to it where it's also about like policing who can be a settler, who can have the full benefits of settlerhood, including the ownership of land. And so, you know, African-Americans had to fight to own land. So did Asian-Americans uh, and, and many other immigrant groups. So 
that's a long-winded answer, but I think um, we, I haven't found a better term than settler at the moment, um, but I hope someday we'll, we'll find something that works better than that. Uh, me too. Yeah, I, I think your, your point about citizenship and defining it um, certainly resonates. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with, I think it's Laura Gomez and her work, Manifest Destinies, and the ways in which like Mexican identity, Mexican-American citizenship, how, you know, depending on what region of the country you were in, um, you would be considered, you know, fully sort of a U.S. citizen or not. Um, and it gets very complicated very quickly. Um, and I, I think another point that um, you certainly, uh, I think, have referenced um, is, is that it's not like um, within one person, right, that they you can't have indigenous identity and a settler identity, whether it's, you know, uh, indigenous to a part of Europe or indigenous to a part of this country. Um, and then also, right, having some sort of settler identity. You know, I think of my wife who is part indigenous, but also part Irish, Scotch-Irish, part American. Um, and within the same human body, <laughs> right, that you can have multiple identities. Um, and you certainly see this um, even in some of the, you know, the most renowned sort of uh, indigenous scholars in this country, right? They, their families are complicated like anybody else, right? Um, so you see, <laughs> even within people who are sort of identified with sort of uh, the Red Power movement, right? Like their family histories are complex. And, you know, in some cases, right, there are actions, right, uh, taken that were forcible and right, people were, you know, raped and whatnot. So that led to sort of, um, you know, aspects of the family tree changing. Um, but in some cases, right, consensual relationships, marriage, and people just living beside each other and creating, you know, new community um, under maybe, you know, colonial conditions that nobody wanted, but here we are. Um, <laughs> so so obviously there's a lot in this book. Um, as I said off air, like I, re I really want to focus on sort of the reconciliation, truth and reconciliation um, research um, that you did, that you observed. Um, so uh, you've you've obviously spent some time in Canada seeing that process, as you mentioned, right? There's there's uh, some things that perhaps we should pay attention to. Some other things maybe we, we shouldn't replicate. Um, but what might a truth and reconciliation process look like in the United States? And maybe even before we got to an actual process, like what would you need to do before even beginning such a process? Um, I, th I think there are clearly steps. Um, to take before, during, and certainly after such a process. Um, and what do you think uh, the U.S. sort of as a nation state, but also settlers would need to sort of do and offer um, to indigenous peoples who might be skeptical of entering into that kind of process? Great question. So um, when I first started this book, I thought, very uncritically that the U.S. should uh, follow the lead of Canada and Australia and embark on this truth and reconciliation process at a national level. But, you know, then I did a lot more research into it, interviewed a lot of people in both those nations about what was occurring, read a lot, you know, really sought out and absorbed a lot of critiques of those processes that are primarily by indigenous scholars in those countries. And, and the other thing I did in the book was I went to the past and I recast a lot of work I'd done in the past on the kind of 19th century friends of the Indian movement, which you know involved a lot of white women. And I started to think about that movement as an early truth and reconciliation movement that failed miserably. And so I tried to, in that process, I tried to learn, you know, what, what had gone wrong. The other thing that happened as I uh, worked on this book is I started a project to interview uh, people working in their own communities on truth and reconciliation, which I don't think most of us even know that's going on. I certainly didn't before I started it. Um, I'll talk more about that later, but that really led me to, to rethink all of this. So one of the, the big takeaways for me is that settlers tend to think that, and I'm going to use the term we here because I'm a settler, um, we settlers tend to think we know best. You know, we think 
we've got it all figured out, you know, and that we know what indigenous people need. And that was a huge mistake in the 19th century. It will plague us today if we continue to follow that. So one of the things I feel extremely strongly about and I write about in the book is that this movement has to be led by indigenous people. And one of the, I guess, prerequisites for a successful truth and reconciliation process here is that settlers need to learn to educate, need to learn to listen to indigenous peoples. Of course, they don't all have the same opinion about everything. So you have to seek out lots of opinions and a diversity of indigenous voices. And um, we settlers, you know, need to really educate ourselves uh, about the places that we live. And we need to get engaged in this. I think one of the weaknesses of the Canadian-Australian processes was that they happened primarily at a national level so that uh, everyday settlers could avoid this completely. They could just say, oh, that's something that's going on up there, over there, doesn't affect me. Uh, you know, I can just go about my business. And so sometimes these processes weren't transformative. Um, and I think that the goal of a process like this should be transformative, that we should create these, you know, a, a much more just uh, society, uh, a society that helps to heal people from these historical traumas, uh, one that's very pluralistic and, and radically democratic, that we have a society where people can practice their different religions and have sovereignty within their native communities. Um, so another thing I think I learned from this all is that the best truth and reconciliation has to happen on all sorts of levels, all at the same time, really. That would be ideal. So a lot of what I write about in the book in terms of the United States is this kind of grassroots, local reconciliation that's going on. And I write a little bit about what some cities and states are doing. Uh, and until recently, we haven't had much discussion about any kind of national truth and reconciliation process. But I think we need that in the United States too. So we need all these things going on at once. We need settler engagement. We need it to be led by indigenous people. And your question about, you know, why should indigenous people trust this process? Um, you know, I, it, it kind of just, it's amazes me that that's many of the indigenous people I've met in the kind of interviewing process I've been doing have developed real trust with settlers over these things over many years. And it, you know, it took a long time. And um, from what I gather, you know, this is a rewarding process. It can be a rewarding process for both settlers and indigenous peoples. Uh, but again, settlers really need to kind of take a back seat and um, to learn, listen. Um, and I, I guess the other major takeaway from all of my studies uh, and interviews is that if a truth and reconciliation process doesn't deal with the founding crime of land theft, it's doomed, you know, and that's one of the big critiques of what has happened in Canada and Australia by indigenous critics is that those nations never have dealt with that kind of fundamental injustice and that fundamental abuse. And I mean, most of these nations have dealt with indigenous child removal. That's the issue they've addressed, but they haven't seen how that is so tied to land dispossession and land theft. And they haven't really addressed that, that question. Indeed. Um, I think I saw my first uh, popular representation of like the land back movement on, you know, one of these new FX uh, shows that finally is highlighting indigenous characters. But other than that, I, I don't really hear anybody outside of indigenous communities and, you know, some communities in the West, you know, I've, I've lived in New Mexico recently and, you know, it's a totally different conversation when you live um, within regions where you're interacting with lots of indigenous peoples, right. With, you know, if you're in New Mexico, you're going to run into people from Tezuka Pueblo, you know, or, you know, elsewhere. So, um, so sort of building on the uh, land 
possession, dispossession, sort of the stealing of land by governments, settlers. Um, so so you, you describe um, sort of land repatriation or rematriation, depending on <laughs> how you want to put it. Um, so so how and why is, is sort of the land sort of rematriation transfer um, from settler societies to indigenous societies? Why is that so central? And, and if, if you feel um, comfortable, if you could maybe think about it in sort of the larger context of the land back movement, uh, it's not necessarily something you sort of explicitly address, but obviously implicitly it's, it's scattered throughout the book. Yeah, I, I started the book uh, before the official hashtag land back movement got going. Um, but I do think some of the things I discuss in the book are really related to that movement. Um, but, but kind of coming at it from a different angle, coming at it from these ongoing efforts that have been, you know, happening for decades um, between indigenous people and settlers uh, in these grassroots and local spaces. Um, so, I mean, one of the things I learned, um, one of the people we interviewed, Walter Echo Hawk, who's now the president of the Pawnee Nations Business Council. And Walter Echo Hawk's been an attorney with the Native American Rights Fund. Um, and we've interviewed him many times. And, you know, one of the things he says is that if you want to make redress for the historical wrongs that indigenous people have faced, you couldn't do anything better than return some of the land. And, um, and he says that in a very forthright, but very gentle way. And he's worked very closely with uh, German American settlers in Nebraska, primarily a man named Roger Welsh. And Roger returned 60 acres of land to the Pawnee people and uh, in that process, the Pawnees and Roger and, and many of the white settlers who live near Roger in Danabrogue, Nebraska, they have all become really fast friends and they spend a lot of time together. Um, for example, they all uh, spent the recent eclipse from 2017 together on newly repatriated land to the Pawnees, uh, watching the eclipse and, you know, having like a really fun day together in the park in Danabrogue, Nebraska. So, um, so I think that, you know, return of land is just one of the most profound possible means of redress. Um, now you asked me about rematriation. This was a term I learned uh, during my research and it's a term I think indigenous women coined, especially indigenous women who are really involved in the food sovereignty movement and in bringing back their sacred corn and sacred squash and beans. Um, and I, as I understand it from them, um, it's bringing back the conception of land in which the land is not seen as a commodity or a resource, but it's seen as a relative. And so the question that then arises, if you start to see the land not as something to be bought and sold or to, to take things out of, but if you see it as your relative, how does that change your interaction with that land? And obviously, um, it's a part of our conversation, I think, about uh, environmentalism uh, today that, you know, so... I think we're finally realizing that uh, American Indian people are incredible stewards of the land. I don't mean this in a, like a stereotypical, oh, you know, Indian people are closer to nature. I just mean that with that different conception of the land comes a very different way of thinking about your uh, use of that land. So one of the things I talk about a lot in the book uh, is that once Native people have regained some of their homelands, one of the things they want to do with it is grow their food again on it. So for example, the Pawnees had 19 different uh, varieties of corn that they used to grow and they had a hard time growing their corn in Oklahoma and in Indian territory. It just, the soil was wrong. The climate was wrong. And so one of the things they've done now that they have some land back is that they've started growing their 
corn varieties. Now they're growing 17 different, they brought back 17 varieties of corn that were really dormant for about 100 years. And that's sort of a hint to where the title comes from. Uh, but other Native people are doing this as well. The Ponca uh, have brought back some of their Native corn as well. And so I think that's what is meant by this term rematriation, you know, of bringing the land back into this relationship uh, between people uh, that is about respect and partnership with the land, not extraction and commodification. Thank you. Um, so you've anticipated uh, one of my questions. Uh, is there anything else you would like to say about the story of uh, the Welches, uh, Danabrog, Nebraska, and the Pawnee, and that whole uh, sort of land back story? Oh, I could talk about that for days. <laughs> but, oh, it's um, fascinating. So <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give you the brief version. So um, a lot of the, the stories I tell in the book about these land returns by non-Indigenous or settler people to Indigenous nations came about kind of by accident. So in the case of Roger and Linda Welsh returning land to the Pawnees, um, Roger Welsh was sitting on the board of the Nebraska State Historical Society uh, in the 1980s when the Pawnees came to the Historical Society and said, we want our ancestral remains back. We want our relatives back. So the Historical Society had become the repository for all of these Pawnee people whose graves had been dug up after the Pawnee were exiled. And so the Pawnees came back and Roger was on the board and he told us quite frankly that when they first came, he just almost laughed and he just thought it was ridiculous that they were asking for their remains back. And other people on the uh, historical society board shared this and they were, none of them were indigenous and I'm, I'm pretty sure all of them were white. Um, and they, they all kind of, not only mocked the Pawnees, but basically rebuffed them completely. But the Pawnees were not deterred and they kept coming back and coming back. And uh, Roger Welsh, who was a folklorist who'd actually worked with a lot of native people, including the Omahas here in Nebraska, he began to really change his attitude and he began to realize that, you know, we aren't digging up the graves of your Irish immigrants, Brady, <laughs> or your Irish ancestors, we aren't digging up pioneer graves and putting them in a historical society. And so Roger became a convert and he, uh, he was the only person on the board that did that. And he resigned from it. And he talks about how he almost lost his job because he spoke out. And so anyway, uh, eventually as, you know, both on the state level and on the national level, the Pawnees prevailed uh, in getting their ancestors back. And, but then they needed a place to bury their ancestors. And, you know, they could have brought them back to their new community in Oklahoma, but they really wanted to build, bury them on their homelands. So Roger decided to uh, offer them a space to bury their ancestors on his 60 acres of land in Danabrogue, Nebraska, which is Pawnee land. It's on the Loop River. And so some Pawnee people came out to visit his land. And this is the part of the story that always gets me and gets Roger when he tells the story and when the Pawnee people tell it as well. And they came to the land. Roger brought them down to the Loop River that runs by his land. And these Pawnee representatives who were all dressed in kind of business suits just waded into the river and started pouring the water over their heads, just felt so overwhelmed to be back in their homelands. And so Roger, Roger was so moved by this that he and his wife decided, well, let's give them, <laughs> let's, let's not, th their idea had been to give them a, a portion of their land as a burial plot and that they would deed it to them when they died. But then they decided, let's just give all of our land back to them now. And let's ask them if we can just live here on the land until we die. And so that's what actually ended up happening. And so 
the Pawnees do have a burial plot on this repatriated land, but they also use the land for a lot of other things. They come and do ceremonies. They come and hang out with Roger and his wife and with other Danabrog people. Um, and that led, you know, that, that happened when shortly after I moved to Nebraska and it inspired a lot of other white landowners to return some land to the Pawnees too. And then, you know, that just led to more and more other uh, sorts of uh, relationships. And one of the things that's really exciting to me about this story is when I, when we interviewed the Pawnee people about, we spent about a week in Pawnee, Oklahoma in March, 2020, the first week of March, just before the pandemic really like hit us. So Perfect we're so time. lucky. We, yeah, we are so lucky to have a week with them. And um, one of the people we talked to, Donna, riding in hair, I'll never forget what she said. She says, it's not just the land we got back, it's the relationships we've formed. And and I would think, I think Roger would say the same thing from the other side. It it didn't just feel good, good to give the land back. It's felt so good to establish these really deep, sustained friendships and relationships. So that's kind of, I hope it's okay to include such a long story, but. Oh, of course. Um, and I. I weave that story. That story primarily is in the last part of the book as an example of this kind of grassroots reconciliation that's been going on. And I really see Roger as a, you know, I think it'd be so easy to slip into seeing him as some sort of oh white savior. You know, he gave some land back to the Pawnee. What a great guy. I don't think that's the lesson I take from his. I think the lesson I take is that any of us have the power in our lives to find ways to make redress for what happened, to become accountable for it and to make redress and to establish these incredible, important relationships. I'm very moved by um, Brian Stevenson, the uh, Equal Justice Initiative sure. uh, founder, who talks, one of the things he always talks about is if you want to make redress for what happened in the past. If you want to face up to this, one of the things you have to do is get proximate uh, with those people who've suffered in the past. And so I think that's a key lesson from Roger as well is getting proximate, but it has to be done with incredible uh, respect and it can't be rushed. I think one of the things that white settlers or settlers in general may fall prey to is that it's painful to face up to these hard histories. And I think some of us want to skip over the hard part, the part where we have to hear about what actually happened and how hard it has been and that, and the part where we have to be accountable for it. So I think many settlers want to skip over that and they want what I call instant reconciliation you know, instant forgiveness, instant trust, instant reconciliation. But it takes a long time to build that. And I think it's really worth it from what I've learned from the people um, I've interviewed. Uh, I, I think that's part of the reason I mentioned that reconciliation, right? There's work to do before sort of a truth and reconciliation process during and afterwards, right? Because this relationality that you certainly emphasize um, in the book and throughout this interview is is critical, right? The, the engagement does not end, right? You you may acknowledge, you may apologize, and the atonement um, is critical. But then you know there's there there are other steps that are hard to even anticipate when you haven't gone through the first parts of the process, right? Sort of the healing that can happen, the relationality, um, you know, the the different relationships that you emphasize, right? There is I'm I'm going to blank on who said this, but um, by the end of sort of Roger Welsh's story, you know, he has, um, I think it was one of the Pawnees saying that, that he, that Roger was now sort of his blood brother, sort of the person on this land that he feels most connected to. Um, and, and that's not something I'm sure Roger anticipated or even, you know, the gentleman who said that about him. Yes. Yes. And that's Francis Morris. Thank and you. boy, was that incredible when we interviewed Francis in Pawnee. Francis was very elderly and he was in a nursing home and 
he told us just how close he is to Roger as a result of working on repatriation and, you know, going to rebury his ancestors on Roger's former lands. And that was not, you know, that was not some casual thing. This was not like, oh yeah, we're, we're good buddies. No, no, this was, we have an incredibly strong bond and connection. And I think you're right. I don't think those are things that one can anticipate or expect. You know, I think uh, as a settler who may want to engage in this practice, it it's not, it, it's, it's, we shouldn't be starting from a point of, oh, you know, it's going to be great. I'm going to establish these relationships. Mm, that might not happen. You know, it's, uh, it's not a reason not to do it, but uh, again, we have to kind of take the lead of indigenous people. And I think Roger really did that. He, he listened, he learned, um, and some unexpected, amazing things happened in his life as a result of it and happened in the Pawnee's life as a, as a, as a result of it. Yeah, you, you can't expect a particular outcome. You can't expect exactly. to be thanked or appreciated. Oh, exactly. Right? Because that's 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 not the point. If that is why you are doing this work, um, then then you are missing sort of critical thing, right? It's <laughs> you don't get right. to sort of dictate the process, dictate other people's reactions, right? Exactly. You're doing this work for all sorts of reasons, but it cannot be for this sort of affirm affirmation, you know. <laughs> exactly. And I, I actually think, you know, that's another sort of I think that's a classic settler colonial move is this kind of um, wanting to be in control all the time, wanting to have everything be certain and predictable about, you know, you do one action and you can, you know, this is what's going to be the result. Um, And I think, I think that's really hard for settler people to give that up. I mean, we've been educated to believe that we're entitled to be here, that, um, this is our land that we know better how to, you know, use this land. Um, and so I think it's just really important to jettison that, but it's really deeply uncomfortable, you know, to, to sort of say, well, I'm not in charge here. I'm not in control. I, I'm going to cede, cede this kind of sense of control. I've, I've been, schooled to believe I, I should have, and I'm going to make myself incredibly vulnerable and uncomfortable. And I mean, I know that's a tall order, but I've also seen the rewards from that, from the people I've interviewed and from my own personal experience. So um, I, I, I encourage settlers to try to abandon that view of, I must be in control all the time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're not in control, you know, whether you're a settler or indigenous not, person or yes. something else, we, we often lack the control that we think that we have. So, yes, good to become comfortable with that feeling. <laughs> um, so you explicitly state uh, that your intended audience, um, I, I'm sure you have many audiences in mind, but you do state that, you know, settlers and settler descendants are sort of your, your intended audience, or at least your focal audience. Um, you've hinted at what you want them slash us, I will say, <laughs> to take from your book. Um, but is, is there anything else you would like to emphasize? Because I, I think that could be helpful for folks who might be sort of skeptical about reading this kind of book, you know, not wanting to feel a certain way as they're reading. Um, you know, I, I was reminded while reading this of a lot of the sort of dialogue around sort of critical race theory that mm-hmm. we're currently hearing and how folks, you know, don't want to feel guilty, don't want to feel shame. And I think you could do a a good job of addressing that in this book. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I do intend this book for anybody to read, and I hope Indigenous people will read it as well. Uh, But I do feel like it is um, primarily directed at people uh, who are settlers um, and, and particular settlers who care about creating a just and pluralistic and democratic and decolonized society. And I, um, you know, if we were just to read the news every day, we'd think, well, who are they? You know, are there, do those people exist? I, those people do exist. I meet those people all the time. They're just not covered in the news. And it's one of the reasons that 
I co-directed uh, or co-initiated co uh, a project uh, called Reconciliation Rising with um, a local Lincoln, Nebraska journalist named Kevin Aberusk. And Kevin's a member of the Rosebud Lakota Nation. And he and I started this project in 2018 because we wanted to document all these people who are doing this in their communities. And um, it's just been really eye-opening and, and really actually incredibly inspiring, I have to say. So um, I think you're right that a lot of settlers, they might look at this book and they think, oh gosh, you know, I've actually had someone once say, people don't want to be hit over the head, Margaret, you know, why are you, you know, dwelling on these topics? And, but that's the thing is far from being an onerous exercise in sort of shame and guilt. Um, the people we've interviewed, it's clear this is an empowering and a liberating practice. And that I feel like the settlers we've interviewed have created these very much more um, fulfilling lives by creating these deep relationships with Native people and by finding ways to make amends for these histories. And um, so the story, I mean, the, the book is not really, I mean, it starts out very much, the first half is very much about me taking a deep dive into the places where I live and learning about these difficult histories. The first part of the book is about truth. And the second part's about reconciliation. And that's where, um, you know, instead of finding like a really difficult process of shame and guilt, it's much more finding an empowering process, uh, which is really about establishing really deep connections between people who've historically been divided and establishing deep connections between people and the land as well. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's an important point, right? It's not just about humans connecting with other humans. Um, yeah, we can have kinship with the land, we can have kinship with all sorts of other species uh, within sort of our world. And, and yet, you know, we often overlook that because we live, you know, not surprisingly, humans uh, are very interested in other humans, right? <laughs> We're fascinated by ourselves, but um, there are others in this world we really need to consider uh, and respect and develop that relationality. Um, and yes. that reciprocity that I, I think you underscore again and again in this book. Um, so uh, one more question, and then then I'm going to ask you to do a, a bit of reading from the book so listeners can, can hear uh, your words. Uh, as, as you considered them for many years. <laughs> um, but sort of the last question, uh, we, we've obviously touched on this again and again. This was a very personal uh, book. Obviously, um, projects like uh, Reconciliation Rising, right? Like you are a human being as much as a scholar, right? In those engagements. Um, so uh, just what has it meant to you to witness and participate in these reconciliation efforts? Um, obviously, you've, you've done this in your immediate community in Nebraska, but you've also traveled um, you, you certainly spent time looking in Canada and Australia. Um, so what has it meant to you? Yeah, I, I think I've gone through um, a lot of the same processes of, of the people I've been interviewing with Kevin, um, where, you know, often you're, you're forced to face up to some very ugly histories and, you know, for me, one of those was I grew up in Colorado, so I really wanted to think about what it meant to benefit from the horrific Sand Creek Massacre that basically expunged the Cheyenne and Arapaho people from the region. Um, in another book, someday I'm going to write more about the Ute people because the Ute people lived in the area where I grew up, and they were also, you know, brutally removed from that area. And so, f you know, first, what it has meant for me personally is to really face up to this history that, you know, as a settler myself, I have benefited from the removal of Native people from these lands. My family was able to move to Colorado in 1969 and, you know, live in a beautiful place. And um, but I wanted to really think about what that meant 
Uh, I do that for Nebraska too. Um, and then I really experienced firsthand really this kind of reconciliation effort as well, because in the process of interviewing people and documenting what they're doing, we've, we have our own podcast uh, and we are, we've also made a short 10 minute film and are making a longer film. Um, you know, I just, I've gotten to not only meet all these people we've interviewed who are so inspiring, uh, but also working with Kevin and our, our director, his name is Boots Kennedy, who's Kiowa. Um, I mean, it's, I've just developed great relationships with them. You know, they, they tease me all the time. They make jokes about me and with me. Um, I mean, we laugh so hard together. We, we also cry together. Um, and, you know, in this process and, and many of the people I've interviewed, I've become really good friends with as well. And, um, you know, have documented a lot of the Pawnee coming back and planting their corn. And I, uh, I fully intend to, you know, just every time they're back, I'm going to try to go and help out with some of the planting or harvesting of corn because it's just so fun to be around them and, you know, just, you know, be with, with friends. They feel like old friends now. So in this process, I, I really, I know this might sound corny or cheesy, but I really feel like I've become a much better person. I feel like I've grown. Um, I've become a lot more hopeful about the world, less cynical. I've become, I've made myself a lot more vulnerable. I think we academics can kind of hide behind our kind of veneer of objectivity and academia. And um, I just feel like I've stretched myself and it, it has been a really good, good thing for me. Well, as somebody who spends uh, his life around a lot of academics, uh, you do sound much more uh, invig invigorated than many <laughs> <laughs> that I interact with these days. You know, the pandemic has been tough on, on all, but certainly uh, academics have borne the, their particular sort of brunt in, yes. in ways that, you know, uh, maybe they, they thought they would have been insulated from that I thought I would be insulated from, but certainly was not so. So you do sound much more hopeful. You sound less skeptical, less cynical, and and I certainly appreciate it. So thank you for that energy, because uh, academia, you know, a lot of the podcasts um, within the New Books Network are certainly uh, helmed by academics interviewing other academics, and you don't always get that. So thank you. <laughs> um, so sort of on that note, to sort of take us full circle, and I, I think this is a section of your book that I think does a good job of sort of. Uh, encapsulating the whole book. Um, would, would you mind reading from the final pages of your introduction, um, to the bottom of page 16, to the bottom of page 17, uh, starting with the sentence, uh, if you are a settler descendant? Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Thank you. If you are a settler descendant, you didn't point the bayonet, shoot the gun, or sign the law that led to dispossession. You didn't squat on Indian land or take up a homestead. That was a long time ago and something that maybe your ancestors, but certainly not you yourself did. What's more, many of you do not even have ancestors who took part in dispossession. They may have come here not as settlers, but as slaves, or they may have been recruited from Asia to build railroads in the Sierra Nevada or from Mexico to pick grapes in the Central Valley of California, or harvest sugar beets in Colorado. Or maybe your ancestors immigrated directly to urban areas in the 20th century, far removed from Indian lands. Maybe you and your family just recently arrived. You had nothing to do with America's founding crimes. But unless you are an American Indian or Alaska Native, you are living on stolen land. The theft may have happened a long time ago, and been carried out by others, but most of us are nevertheless still trespassers. And we are also ongoing beneficiary, beneficiaries of this theft. Even though we rarely admit it, Indian dispossession and removal opened up new possibilities and prospects for settlers, even as it foreclosed so many opportunities for indigenous people. We do not have to remain captive to this history, however. Many tribes like the Pankas and many settlers have made truth and reconciliation an intimate, 
encounter, and practice. They show us that confronting our painful histories can enrich and empower all of us. As the settler Art Tandrup puts it, this whole Keystone XL pipeline thing is something we wish didn't happen, but the other side of it has fulfilled our lives so much. The experiences we've had, the relationships we have built with the Pankas, it has been just phenomenal. What would it mean to face our history of settler colonialism as the Tandarups and the Pankas, the Welshers and the Pawnees have done? How would it change us in our everyday lives and in our relationships to confront our past? How would it transform our society? Reckoning with the past is not to be feared or avoided. It is a path to living more fully and responsibly, not just to survive, but to revive and thrive. That was Margaret Jacobs, author of After 100 Winters. Uh, thank you, Margaret. Sure. It's been great to talk to you, Brady. Much appreciated. Until next time.